Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Helen Dale, a senior writer at Law and Liberty. She won the Miles Franklin Award for her first novel, The Hand That Signed the Paper, and read law at Oxford and Edinburgh. Her most recent novel, Kingdom of the Wicked, has been shortlisted for the Prometheus Prize for Science Fiction. She writes for a number of outlets, including The Spectator, The Australian, Standpoint, and Quillette. She lives in London and is on Twitter, at Helen Dale. I welcome Helen Dale to Savage Minds. Well, I wanted to start off our conversation by talking about lockdown and the insanity of both sides of this issue from the way governments have chosen to, quote unquote, mitigate the virus to the bizarre responses within societies around the EU, the UK, where almost without exception, the left has become lockdown, baby, lockdown, and the right has been the more of the two traditionally socialist-minded, if I might say. They're more concerned about workers, eating, housing, hunger, health care that's not COVID-related. Not a peep out of the left on this. I wouldn't describe it as socialism, although it can kind of look a bit socialist if you're coming out of a, a left tradition. What you do get in conservatism, and bearing in mind there are three big, straps of ideas feeding into contemporary conservatism. There's throne and altar conservatism, one nation conservatism and classical liberalism. Now one nation conservatism has a strand in it, quite a big one, known as communitarianism. And the it is the communitarian streak of Toryism, particularly in Britain, but also in other countries like Australia, that has been the sort that is saying, well, no, 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 you can't be in the business of instructing Londoners in tiny flats with no garden uh, to not leave their homes ever. You can't do this. People will go mad. And it is one of the reasons why there's been all these internal fights within the Conservative Party, because it's exposed the differences in these three intellectual traditions of, of Toryism. And so the, the internal fight in the party has tended to be from the ones that are more one nation-ish, like Boris, to those that are unfortunately, and I've always considered myself to be in the on the classical liberal wing of the Tory party, uh, like Michael Gove. And a good way of illustrating this is, is Michael Gove became famous during the Brexit campaign for saying people have had enough of experts because the experts are always wrong. And a lot of people took that to think that Gove was arguing, or oh, we need to like stop being run by technocrats who don't actually care about their fellow citizens very much. But it's actually not that. It looked like that at the time and it probably helped more people vote leave. But what it is, is a conflict between two groups of elites. And Michael Gove is representative of one group of elites. And th this is quite widespread in the Conservative Party. Uh, people who are just as clever and just as educated as all the individuals on SAGE and all the leadership of the various Blairite quangos and so on and so forth. And people like Gove have felt for many years that they have been locked out in some way, well, on the subject of locking people out or locking people in. 
that you know they think that they should be listened to and should have more power. So the wing of the Tory party that's tended to be but science, the science, has unfortunately been the classical liberal wing. And the wing of the Tory party that's been saying, well, actually, no, we need to think about communities and how people live in them and how they're to work and how they're to get jobs again has been the One Nation side. So there's been this huge internal fight in the Conservative Party and periodically it's busted out into public debate, as we saw with the um, Dominic Cummings story and also with the Neil Ferguson story as well. Uh, the, the bonking boffin, the one who thought that he was allowed to uh, break the rules in order to preserve his very irregular living arrangements. So that is why you finished up with Gove being very pro-lockdown. Having a fight to the death, I'm sure there's been enormous arguments in Cabinet over this and uh, periodically they leak, with Boris Johnson, who's out of that One Nation tradition, saying, well, you know, we just can't keep doing this to people. It's improper to do. And so that is why it can look vaguely socialist, communitarianism, but it isn't really. It's actually... Apart from the, 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 the love of the monarchy and the military that is a characteristic of throne and altar Toryism, One Nation Toryism can have that very strong traditionalism, the sense of tradition, of preserving communities, of suggesting that communities can be more important than the individual, which, of course, is completely not what classical liberalism is, which is very pro-individual. It's like most forms of liberalism, it values... Express, expression rights and participation rights, whereas One Nation Toryism can be, well, sometimes you sh shouldn't participate. Sometimes you should keep a still tongue in your head. Sometimes you should sit down and just be grateful for what you have. So it's a very different tradition, but it can look vaguely socialist from the outside, look, look, particularly the, the concern for workers. That is a strong part of One Nation Toryism. Well, the concern about the rights of people to feed themselves under lockdown was almost muted on the left. I was appalled. Mind you, I was submitting to editors even pitches on pieces like, can I you know, write about this piece focused on the psychological well-being of people? The answer invariably was no, uh, we can't run that because that will look like we don't support lockdown. And I was appalled by this because the number one liability in all of this for most everyone who has not died from the disease is mental health. Now, I know there's people on long support COVID groups. I'm in one of them just as an observer. And I understand that people are affected by this. Being on the side of worrying about mental health doesn't mean one has to deny the somatic effects of the disease. But the marginalization by editors and publications over suicide and mental health issues, I found atrocious. I would like to have had more information. I would have also have liked to investigate this because what little information Japan popped out there in October, we were able to see that in one month of 2020, Japan had more suicides than it had in the entire previous year. And that's in a country that traditionally has high rates of suicide that's the other thing. Uh, one of the characteristics of broadly speaking, and this is a bit of a shorthand, but I'll use it. It comes from my classics background, is the pagan civilizations, and Japan is one, are far less concerned about suicide than people who are coming out of 
monotheistic traditions. It's never been a crime. It's never been morally reprehensible in the same way. And there's a significant streak, and you can see it in, in Roman literature, and you can also see it in Japanese literature. There's a significant streak of that uh, those pagan traditions in Japan, obviously it's Shinto, that suicide can be honourable in certain circumstances, is an honourable and dignified thing to do. Uh, and that obviously can have its negative effects, that the whole tradition of the kamikaze, the divine wind, the suicide pilots, was building on something that already existed in Japanese culture and has done for thousands of years. And you can read the, the Roman writers and the, the Roman military had the whole culture uh, of death before dishonor if you were a soldier so uh, so if you get a, a, an uptick in suicides in a country like japan or south korea or the people's republic of china or vietnam or countries where there there isn't much heritage or any heritage at all of monotheism then you know there's something serious going on in that country and the suicides in the west that were the high profile names were published, but overall we, you know, I had to dig a lot to speak to people about what suicide rates were or might look like. Uh, you have all these organizations also trying to control how journalists represent suicide, mm -hmm. but it wasn't like someone was trying to give details. I spent a lot of time trying to dig up information on this on top of speaking to people who work in mental health, not necessarily around suicide itself, but the concomitant issues that come with suddenly having to wipe out your savings to survive, suddenly not being able to pay rent or eat, governments who couldn't have given a, a toss about renters. I mean, there were all these laws put into place in most Western countries to protect people paying mortgages, but nothing for renters. I mean, literally nothing for renters. It was quite shocking to me to see this. The paucity of money that was given to Americans, I'm sure you're aware they've been given very little. Out of all the Western countries, I think they've been given the least. Yes. Yeah. And at least in Britain, quite a lot of effort was put into stopping uh, people being evicted. And a lot of effort was put into dealing with homelessness in London, which was a good thing to see. I, I was very pleased to see both of those because I, I, there's a chap up in Manchester um, who the, the fellow who found, Nick Buckley, who founded Mancunian Way, which is mainly focused on homelessness. And he made the comment to me uh, with the homelessness issue. He says, this has shown that if politicians are forced to deal with a very pressing issue and focus all their attention on it, it can be solved. And uh, he, he was talking particularly about the issue of homelessness in big cities. And that was sort of a shock to the system to me because a lot of people have just developed this idea that, oh, well, there's always just going to be bums begging out and out in front of Lloyd's in the city or, or whatever. And then you get that awful thing where they, they build um, areas, they put pavements near, near outside public buildings with lumps on them so a homeless person can't sleep there because it's too uncomfortable, uh, that kind of thing. And I just sort of, I can see why they do it. You don't want someone who smells like urine out in front of your building. But it also sa says that some of the people doing it are pretty heartless as well. That's not a nice trait. Oh, I lived in London's canals and rivers. I had a narrow boat. And right before I left London, this is really the last straw for me, was watching momentum pushing people 
within its own party like Corbyn to address gender identity. Meanwhile, the rising rates of homelessness, you could see if you lived on a narrow boat in London, because a lot of the homeless would be living very near the canals and waterways. Yes, because te- it's a bit warmer. Temperature's warmer. And why did the Labour Party fail in this? In fact, this gets to your entry into journalism, which took place around a piece you wrote about Brexit. That's what you described yeah. to me as your break. And uh, I'll be quite honest with you, I voted against Brexit. But the first thing that happened after I voted against Brexit, when I saw all my fellow leftists who voted for it refuse the referendum's results, I was a bit shocked. And for lack of a better word, I was like, wait, can't we learn to lose the baseball game? Like, that didn't go our way? Like, <laughs> why are you foot stomping? So it was a very strange thing from even the run up to the Brexit vote. I remember we were told it was a consultation. It wasn't necessarily something formal. We were told it was like a temperature taking. So I was not impressed by the way it was presented to us, but I was less impressed by the way the losing party, my side, reacted to it. A lot of people have spoken about this, and I think it's a, I think it's a very important issue because I actually wrote a piece. I, I, I mean, I wrote many, many, many things about Brexit, but I wrote a piece at one point where I discussed the observation made by a friend of mine who's Lebanese, and uh, he, to cut a very long story short, it's a fifteen hundred word piece for a British magazine. Uh, Armia just said. It's very bad when people don't accept results, electoral results in a democracy. And he was obviously thinking in terms of Lebanon's history. He said, because what happens in the Middle East when, when people don't accept that they lost is you get a civil war. And uh, that really brought me up short. And there's a, there's a, a comment that uh, Professor Steve Davies at the University of Manchester, who's a political historian, Says, says the most important thing about democracy is that it provides for the peaceful and orderly transfer of power. But in order for that to work, you have to know when you're beaten. And he, was, he wrote a book about Brexit and the realignment of British politics, it's called. And a great deal of that book focuses on the problem of people not giving losers consent. People who are absolutely convinced that they represent the people or the majority, despite all of these great piles of votes, starting up in Sunderland and then going elsewhere, showing that they don't represent the people, that they don't represent the majority and that they can't speak for them. And and this can happen on all sides of, of politics. Professor Davies talks about the moral majority in America often had this idea in their head that they spoke for the people in the United States when they clearly didn't. They clearly didn't command a majority. They could get a lot of the equivalent of a lot of seats and have influence in the Republican Party, but they couldn't control the whole of the Republican Party and their inability to do so is how you finish up with figures who are absolutely the antithesis of the moral majority like Donald Trump, but he's not the only one. There's lots of other people in, in America who are, who, who, who are sort of broadly right wing, but they're absolutely not conservative Christians and they probably 
don't go anywhere near church or even think about it. And that's in the United States, which is a, a no, much more religious country than anywhere in the European Union. It's a more religious country still per head of population than Poland. Mm-hmm. I didn't realise that. I had to go. I had to go and do some research for a piece. And I, you, you think of Poland, you think conservative Catholic country, but mm-hmm. the United States is still per head of population got more conservative religious people than Poland. Well, I grew up in the states from the age of ten, and I grew up in the deep south, so I know it. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, you've got a very interesting think- accent. <laughs> Well, if you didn't, if you didn't go to church on Sunday, which is my mother had a period of every Sunday, we go to a different type of church. We were at the Word of Faith Temple where people were speaking in tongues. And the next week we'd be at a Presbyterian church. The next week, a Methodist. We went to like every church. It was like, it was like going around the world, but in the city of New Orleans. And some Sundays we'd stay at home and I would like use the refrigerator box, the box that came, you know, outside of the refrigerator, and I'd cut it into a puppet theater, and I'd have puppet shows. I was a kid. And so if we were doing that one day, the puppet show or listening to Indian raga music because of my father's influence, we'd invariably get a ding dong on the doorbell and someone would say, hi, would you like to come with us to Bible study, you know, and um, it was really shocking. Like, you know, they would treat us that we would burn in hell if we did not go with them it was quite interesting (laughs) yeah that must have been extraordinary you see american religion and i i have to say the ones that look like they're having the best time are the black churches and it's probably because they have the best choirs (laughs) they do look like they're having the best time they really do and you can just see the 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 gospel tradition and the terrific music then feeding into popular culture and it's very hard to criticize you just sort of think you know this is a good contribution to make to civilization guys keep it up (laughs) yes well there's a lot to say about religiosity because as much as i had to push back from that because it was what i just described was quaint but if you pile that on it becomes heavyweight and oppressive and especially if you're not a christian or if you're Mm. not wanting to go to church on sundays and then every wednesday there was another event in the baptist church when we moved to mississippi that happened i forgot what it was called but involved a potluck dinner so there was a cultural side and these were not mean people mind you and they're certainly not not the racist i mean not everyone was the racist that BLM would have us believe. This is the other side. And again, my family was not white. So mm. we were always these objects of curiosity in the, in the communities in which we lived. My brother was African-American. And so people thought I was African-American because I looked like him. And we had to sort of answer to who we are constantly, but so too do many people. I mean, growing up in the 20th century, people seem to think that race was uh, was always that clear when it's not. You know, I don't know if you saw that movie from the early 2000s, Russian Ark. It was a beautiful film shot in one take. And it's really about the history of Russia. But one thing that comes up in there when you see Pushkin, for instance, who himself was yes. not white, he had origins in Ethiopian background. That's actually quite, it's quite common because at the same, it's, it's Ethiopians are Orthodox. 
So you often get Russian people with Russian, mixed Russian and Ethiopian backgrounds. Absolutely. And yeah. the idea that whiteness somehow was Britain and France and Spain. Well, no. Scratch back to. Well, not even not even Spain, really. I mean, Spain's got some very awkward, interesting history there, too. <laughs> and the Moors made it up. You go to Sicily and you'll see architecture there that looks a copy and paste from any Medina that you'd see in North Africa or Cairo or Syria. I love the cathedral, the, the cathedral in Syracuse. Yes. The one that was a, a Greco Roman temple. And so the columns are still there. And then it became a church. Then it became a mosque. Then it turned back into a church. I mean, it's fantastically ugly because these ar architectural traditions don't fit together. But it's also fascinating. Well, that's the thing is that we today, with the woke culture that's abounding since two, three decades, many people believe that somehow history is linear, that progress goes forward, that there is no such thing as regressive politics. But what we've opened with discussing the lockdown, we see the left has regressed. Because I think telling an entire population of people, irrespective of the size of their flats, well, one lives in a house with a garden or like Schwarzenegger has pet goats he's petting and putting onto YouTube. So he has both the space to have goats, the time to do that, and the money to have goats in the first place, means that we have a huge disconnect from what the left thinks is wealth and history to what I think the more conservative end of that spectrum politically believes. And one thing I've appreciated in my years since I transitioned to journalism, which was around 2010 when I left academia for Haiti, even though I stepped back in briefly, I really appreciate writers on the right who are able to understand historical processes and history itself, which the left seems to skip over. I'm not sure whether this has come from you, and I, I know it's your interview and you get to ask the question, so you don't yeah. have to answer yeah. this if you don't want yeah, yeah, to, yeah. Yeah. but I'd like to uh, ask you a question. I'll preface it with a couple of comments so it doesn't just come out of the blue, mm -hmm. and then we can go because you onto a little bit of my personal history before I started basically becoming Mrs. Brexit. Um, <laughs> one of the things I've noticed is, I mean, I'm a conservative, I'm a member of the Tory party. Uh, I probably, I call myself yeah, a classical liberal, although there's significant one nation elements in there. Um, I'm thrown an altar to the extent that I love the musical tradition of Anglicanism, but I'm, I'm not religious. So I'm like Richard Dawkins in that sense, I'm culturally Church of England you know, the Tory party at prayer. Uh, now, one of the things I've noticed is we we are now, I live in the home county, so, you know, the big posh, the posh donut, and imagine London as the whole, treat it as, an, or a bagel better, and treat London as the, as the hole in the middle. And I'm in the, I'm in the home counties, which is the, 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 the ring, basically, around London, outside the M25. And what that means, that has certain political effects in this area, is that Labour is the poor relation here. Uh, it's a, The areas are Tory, and if we get annoyed with the Tory party, we don't vote Labour, we vote Lib Dems, the Prosecco party, they get called, uh, which is sort of, yeah, yeah, well, and the Prosecco must flow. And they're quite posh, and they're quite blind the way uh, some posh people can be to how advantaged they are in life. Uh, but... Uh, it means that Labour is very weak 
in these areas. And what that led to, uh, roughly between 2015 and 2019, is that all the local constituency Labour parties finished up being run by nutters, uh, you know, the very extreme left, because they were easy to take over because they were so weak. You know, they didn't have big memberships. Right. And what happened then as a result was that we got refugees from Labour who were interested in politics, but who were not extreme. Some of them were probably Blairite. I don't know. I, I, I didn't, I don't go around picking at people's politics in, unless they, they volunteer the information. But they were sort of regular people. They were quite normal people. Um, and it became clear fairly quickly that the ma majority of them were Jews or women. And some of the women I would describe as, as radical feminists, so they did struggle with conservatives, you know, in the sense that they turned up to a, a, a conservative constituency association and discover that none of the women there called themselves feminists and all of them thought it was, and I do as well, I find, I find feminism very weird um, and, and sort of puts my teeth on edge, sort of politicises everything in a way that I don't like. But they were mainly quite, quite normal, regular folks. But one of the things we noticed was Tories are of two types. There are the instinctive types who just don't read politics and don't care. They just sort of don't want things to change too much and they want the government to stay away from them and they want to get on with their lives. That sort of very instinctive, basic Toryism and they're often not educated in an academic sense or if they are, they're some. Uh, uh, there'll be an engineer or a technical qualification rather than one that's encouraged them to read a lot of books. So that's one kind of Tory. The other kind of Tory is the person who's read everything. And I fell into that category. So I have read the other side's books. And it wasn't just me. I mean, our local MP has read the other side's books. Now, he used to be a soldier, served in Iraq and Afghanistan, but he's very widely read. And that's quite common. And we would get these refugees from Labour who had never read anything by a conservative writer. They didn't know what conservatism was. Some of them hadn't even heard of Sir Roger Scruton or F.A. Hayek, Nobel Prize for Literature, Nobel Prize for Economics, yeah, major historical figures. Whereas I'd read their books. So I'm prefacing my question with that. Where did this thing on the left come from and when did it start so there's two questions there where did it come from and when did it start of refusing to read the other side's books if you're an, if you're intellectually interested in politics and political history where did that come from i well, don't know i'm I'd not say intellectual in, intellectually interested in anything really i mean let's face it helen i i was an adolescent in the in the 1980s early 1980s although I went to university as an adolescent. I was quite young when I went to university. And I recall the force of the right trying to know platform Robert Mapplethorpe and Cindy Sherman. I remember that. But there was a difference between him and the current era. He was pretty much a single figure, a few cronies around him. It wasn't a mass movement on the right. I think most people on the right knew that they couldn't have Michelangelo without Picasso. They couldn't have the great painters of the Renaissance without understanding that a little breast or penis had to show sometimes, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there wasn't that notion on the right that body parts were in and of themselves impure. 
skip to today, and pronouns are impure. I interviewed Gina Rippon the other day, and I <laughs> joked with her at the beginning saying, I'm not going to ask you your pronouns. This is couched as a generational issue, but it's much more than that, Helen. As someone who came from the background of being trained in gender studies, and I have taught queer theory before it went crazy. Queer theory was initially about a visibility of gay culture, gay art practices, of gay bodies. Okay, got that. I just watched a brilliant film last night, which became sort of one of those hallmark moments of gay culture within the 1990s, where people would reveal what gay culture meant even in the mid-1950s. And I'm thinking of Rock Hudson's All That Heaven Allows. And this is a film he made with Jane Wyman, who at the time was married to Ronald Reagan. She plays the woman who's eight years older than this man, who's, we know now in retrospect, gay. And of course, the job of his is to act, just as the job of hers was to act. But this film sort of became a, a poignant focus by many filmmakers in the 1990s to rehash. So there were many films that took issue with the way that there was, as Randy Schiltz calls it, there was AIDS before Rock Hudson and there was AIDS after Rock Hudson. And exactly. AIDS is what forced gay culture into the limelight. And it was a travesty for me personally because I lost half my friends. I lost my brother. It was the worst moment for me as someone who grew up, I mean, the sexuality around our generation was AIDS. I mean, it was really shocking. I think we're probably quite similar in age. I mean, I was still at high school in the 80s, obviously. Uh, I didn't go to university and I didn't start university until 1990. But I certainly was high school in a very conservative state and you could not be out uh, in it. You just could not. Um, I And the weirdness of it was, is I was out to my parents, but I couldn't be out anywhere else because people... And they didn't understand the difference. They were so purblind, they didn't even understand the difference between lesbians and, and gay men. Um, you were just considered a disease vector. Right, right. I remember that. And it's just... My conceptualisation of pride, and I've had the experience of being arrested on an illegal pride barge, but my... Con experience of pride was very much the pride was to show that you weren't broken mm -hmm. you were you were a normal person you were just different in this way right but already I could see then and it's become it's become much worse now you weren't just different you were also better and I found that at the time, I found that very alarming. And it wasn't just something that I saw, obviously, in gay culture, lesbian culture, gay friends, lesbian friends. And they, they were, these were people who tended not to say the quiet part loud. But I noticed it develop quite quickly amongst some of the uh, racial pride movements. And it caught on amongst gays and lesbians and they would you know black power black pride and so on and so forth and it was 
already shading into not just different, but better. And I remember getting into a furious argument, and I suspect I was only about 19 at the time, with another chap when I said to him, if you want to run this line of pride and power on the basis of race or sexual orientation, you've got to remember that everybody else can do it too, and there's more of them. You need to be very, very careful of this rhetoric that doesn't just make a claim for difference, but also makes a claim for better. Well, on the outside, I understand the visceral desire to stomp out one's history of of oppression. But the problem is this, just like I'm constantly arguing against the gender ideologist saying, I don't have a gender. I think we need to understand that history is not us. You and I didn't contribute to the British occupation of India or slavery in the US any more than the person who is saying that they are oppressed was oppressed by us directly. And I think there's a lot of personalization that's happened. Back to your question about why leftists aren't reading history or reading across the board. I think this comes from the way we've been spoon feeding our students. I didn't do it. I had a lot of colleagues who did. I gave a lot of reading. I insisted that students read both Huntington and Edward Said. I thought it was important Mm. that they saw the person to whom Edward Said was responding. I would have students say, well, that's a lot of reading. And I would say, well, oh gosh, good point. Yes. You Mm. can, you know, but this isn't Twitter. We're talking 10 years ago, but even then, Twitter's affected people's attention span. And I say, you know what? You can come to class and have read the work and have something to bring to it. Or you can come to class not having read the work, and I will just tell you what you haven't read, which is not what you want to happen here. This is what the word empowerment isn't really all these cliches that people would like it to be. Empowerment doesn't mean someone giving you something. Empowerment means do the reading yourself, come to class with an opinion, and offer it. So... I would even, I would have students come into class every week. This was something a lovely friend of mine, Willard, did at NYU when we were both there and I took it on. He had students write what he called a position paper. These are your two readings for the week, write a piece. And the students would say to me, well, what do I have to write about? And I said, read both of them and come up with an idea yourself. Because what I noticed in my own struggles as a writer too, I used to hate writing when I was in graduate school. I would cry over writing. Now. Oh, like that cart that cartoon, you know, where you, you you procrastinate, leave it too late, and then there's a the little strap at the end that says all the work while crying. That's right, that's right. Well, that was me because I felt like I had nothing to say, I had nothing to offer. And it took me a while to find my voice because I used to read at least a book a day my entire life. Oh, good grief. I wish I could read that fast. <laughs> I was a very huge reader, but then I got to a point of now. I'm very comfortable with writing to the point that I don't feel myself. I am not me unless I write. But this is a thing. Why is it that we have fast-tracked students into ideological formation? This is why they haven't read history. They're being given texts to make them believe in a certain ideology. And a lot of the texts that have been published by academic presses especially are completely nonsensical. I would even dare say, someone should do a study of this, take some of the top 50 academic books, send them to a general publisher for the general population and see if publishers would publish it. Because I can guarantee, I bet 80 to 90% of them would not even get published. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. And I do think 
I know I, I mean obviously I went into practice lawyers usually go into practice but I have people who I've been in practice with who have gone into the academy or uh, um, changed jobs or so on and so forth and outside of the lawyers lawyers who, particularly lawyers who've got experience of working in in private law co contract and commercial and corporate like I did they're alert to someone trying to do a snow job on them I have noticed academics being appallingly exploited. Now, and this applies to all academics, the ones I don't like, the ones that I do like, or, or, or so on and so forth. Predatory publishing, predatory journals, uh, and they're relying on the fact that outside of the law faculty, typically, a lot of academics are very unworldly. And then you see the book gets published and it's hundreds of dollars. And the, uh, the academic gets like 50 quid or something or nothing um, or, the, or even has to pay to have their work published. And there have been times in my life where I have you know, maintained contact with academic friends, some of the more open minded ones. They might be very left wing, but they're, they're more open minded. And I've had to sit a few of them down and go, this person is not your friend. This publishing outfit wants to pick your pocket. This journal is charging you to have your work published. This is not an appropriate publishing relationship. And because I've had three novels published and have had done, you know, written, had periods where I've been a columnist for different outlets and so on and so forth. So obviously I've got, in addition to my own legal experience as a practitioner, I've got my own life experience as, as a writer. I've shown them what a normal publication contract looks like and how you are supposed to be paid by a normal commercial publisher. And you know, to give you one very tiny example, which is in, in the law of contract, if you are paid 10% of the recommended retail price for a book, that means if a, a book is 20 quid in the shop, 20 euros in the, in, in the shop, the author, the, a person goes into the bookshop and buys that book and the author gets two quid or two euros. That's the recommended retail price. Almost all, in fact, I would venture to say all academic publishing I have seen, the better ones will pay 10% of the net receipts. And net receipts is how much money in total does the publisher get out of the sales of book X? And the author gets 10% of that. And that's only the better ones. Often, and of course, obviously, net receipts is a lot less. Now, often the author gets nothing, the academic, or they get paid a flat fee of only £100 or €100 Euros or, or just nothing at all. And with the journals, you get this predation where in order to get the work published, the, the author actually has to pay out of their own pocket. Now, I suspect that this economic practice is at the root of a lot of the nonsense that you're describing in academic publishing, where you're quite right. If it was sent to a commercial publisher, if it was sent to my, my publishers, which have variously been you know, Alan Unwin and Bloomsbury and places like that, yeah, the response of, of my editors would be, my God, who published this crap? Right. A lot of these books, I think, would have been either outright refused or editors would have said, 
okay, see this copy of edits. <laughs> you have to rewrite this. It doesn't make sense. Yes. Yeah. And, and the thing is being willing, every writer knows this, being willing to submit to be edited is part of growing as a writer. That doesn't mean your editor is always right, but it does mean your editor is at least sometimes right. And you can learn a lot about how to put a sentence together by having your work critically and thoughtfully read by someone else who is not you, but who can also write and can see where you've put your foot in it, basically. And that does make, you've had this experience, I've had this experience in journalism and in, in book length works. It makes you a better writer. It does. And one thing that is also shocking to me, though, since I left academia and came to this world of publishing and magazines, and what the number one thing that shocked me was to find editors in their 20s. And then the more I've, I scratched the surface of that, a lot of these publications with editors in their 20s weren't really worth their value in data weight, as it were. I'll give you an example. Uh, when the Lisa Littman's ROGD study was published and she had pushback both within Brown University and across the whole trans lives matter gen, you know, genre of people, I wrote about it. Now I had to publish in the far right I had to publish in public discourse, which is part of the Heritage Foundation. Yes, that's a, and that's a that's a proper conservative think tank. It's not like Cato or right. um, uh, what's another good American one or Law and Liberty or Liberty Fund, which are very center right and, and publish a lot of libertarian authors um, in the American definition. No, no, no. Heritage are proper conservatives. I don't think they've got a single um, libertarian or classical liberal or sort of center-right style person on their books. I would be very surprised if they do. And yes, and it was really frustrating for me because before I went to Heritage, I wrote Susan Matthews at Slate. She wrote me back, I kid you not, I'm reading the email now. Hi, I'm not interested in this piece. Now, you and I have both had rejections from editors. I've never heard one saying, I'm like very personalized, like it's not my cup of tea, I don't fancy it. So I wrote her back just, what do you mean by, I'm not interested in, you know, like, and she says, to be clear, we're not interested in running this piece anywhere in Slate because it was very critical of the transgender lobby, right? <laughs> now, when you get to places like Slate, Autostraddle, Bitch Magazine, all these, they sound cool, don't they? Like, I'm empowered because someone calls me bitch or I can autostraddle. Like all the sexual innuendo implied within some of these publications titles, and then these are lib femme at best publications. A lot of them are not even that. A lot of them are what we call in Brooklyn drug fronts for MRA nonsense. And there's a lot of MRA ideology within the trans movement that I've come toe to toe with. And of course, I'm the baddie because I refuse to say I have a gender <laughs> or because I say the only cisgender people here are the very men who claim that they're in the wrong body and then set out to correct their body by default and by complete logic, they're both trans and cis at the same time, right? So I haven't really tolerated this kind of hocus pocus language that's taken over the last decade most ferociously. That said, we're seeing where the left has embraced this unreservedly, including editors who say, 
oh, I got a few letters and don't worry, I've handled that. And we got over a hundred threats on our answering machine, not a problem. Skip to that same editor three years later who says, we can't run your pieces anymore. Skip to that same publication today, running a lot of pro-gender pieces. They've been captured. And you see the capture when you deal with editors who are very reasonable, like so kind, some of them, some are not, but this particular one I'm thinking of, very kind, and it's a leftist publication. How did they go from joking with me by email saying, this lobby's insane, they are doing exactly what Foucault said we shouldn't be doing, which is going to the institution for rubber stamping. And now this very same lobby, Helen, is the one that's saying that they're breaking gender binaries, that they are creating the authentic self, and they're using, again, some of these writers that would never be published in Penguin or HarperCollins because Judith Butler is completely unintelligible, but they're using that as their basis. The right comes in, the right has been trained in the writings of Plato and Aristotle and the knowledge that history comes from somewhere and history goes somewhere. The left, I feel, addresses history as if it's this thing that you can sort of pick and choose from, and then you remodel it. And then it's like, oh, we lost the Brexit vote, but we really didn't. Let's twist this narrative around to figure out how we can get that stopped. And so what did they do after the Brexit vote? I didn't support this, by the way. People were saying, well, let's have another referendum. And this Steve Davies writes about this. This is why his book on the realignment of British politics about Brexit is very good. And he actually does a, and I I won't go into the detail, it's better that people read it. Mm -hmm. He actually does a mathematical analysis of what elite remain opinion wanted. And if you go through the parliamentary votes, you finish up with a situation, their preference was if they couldn't get their second referendum, then their next choice was actually no deal, which is extraordinary. But the force of his analysis and the careful analysis of, of the, the mathematics of the parliamentary votes, which, which produced what's known in, in, in maths and statistics as a Condorcet paradox, and I won't provide any more than that. It's best to just read Davies and, and see what he says. Uh, is it, it was really quite extraordinary. And it was that analysis of his and my friend Amir's comments about you know, people who can't accept that they lost a vote that really made me think about the problems of democratic uh, legitimacy and losers' consent you know, the extent to which democracy depends on people, it's all very cricket and, you know, cricket or rugby or, you know, <laughs> type analogies of playing by the rules. There are rules. You play by them or otherwise you finish up with a mess or, you know, and, or as people from the Middle East will tell you, you finish up with civil wars. You're listening to Savage Minds and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. I did vote against Brexit, although 
I was a bit perplexed. I was perplexed because I learned Corbyn was actually pro what was then called Lexit. So he was pro-Brexit from a leftist position. In fact, some of those positions from the right and his position as a Lexiter coincided. There were some of the same ideas behind the rationale for voting. I don't know where you were living in uh, when the lead up to the referendum in, uh, London. in London. Right. So you'd have yeah. seen even more of it. I was in Australia. I was working for a parliamentarian at the time. And when I, vo I voted leave, but when I voted, I was much more focused on Australian politics because there was a uh, federal election in July uh, 2016. Mm hmm. And I was working for a parliamentarian who was up for re-election and he, he did get re-elected. And once I was happy with the fact that he'd been re-elected, I, I actually, I, I left and, and came back to the UK. But, uh, but I was much more focused. There was actually something else going on in Australia, which took my attention because I was trying to get a parliamentarian re-elected. Basically, that's what a chief of staff, a senior advisor, as they, they're called in Australia, that's what they do. And so it was very, the British thing going on was sort of, in the background and I knew I would vote in it and organize a postal vote but it was not colonizing my mental real estate but one of the things I do remember was the way the various vote leave groups not just the official one but the the uh, the one the, the Aaron Banks one that didn't get the official designation leave.eu they would find all these historic videos of Corbyn when he was much younger and much more dashing you know railing against the European Union and and they would just tweet them or put them on Facebook and say something like we agree <laughs> you must have seen this as well yes I did well I tell you Helen I mean I was in the throes of having just had a child I read up not in depth such that I would have every answer for the pro and cons of each position but I tell you what my mind was changed after I voted to remain and I'll tell you why. Two things. The opinion piece that was surprisingly published in The Guardian by Mike Carter called I Walked from Liverpool to London, Brexit Was No Surprise, a beautiful piece. I read that. Yes, I read that. It was fantastically. It is. Yeah. It's one of the best pieces they've published. And he talks about the fact that people never recovered from Thatcherism and that their pain to leave the EU was in no way related to all the leftist quips of racist, xenophobe. Some of that did persist, but let's not pretend that the right is the unique domain of, of racism and xenophobia, another thing we can get to in a moment. But that, that touched me. And then I came more into contact with people who had opinions about Lexit. And what I saw was a huge crossover between left positions on Lexit and right positions on Brexit. And that's when I began to see that the right in the United Kingdom had very much fomented a lobby around workers' rights that the left never considers. Well, that's how it looks to a lefty. It, it's just one nation communitarianism. Yeah. And it actually goes back to when Disraeli was prime minister, where people, uh, the reform bill, the first of the reform bills had enfranchised a lot of, a lot more men, working class men, and so Disraeli conceptualised of one nation conservatism, and this is a shorthand, but it's a good way of, of understanding it, as an alliance of top hats and cloth caps against the Liberals. And one of the things I have been forced to acknowledge, despite coming broadly speaking out of a liberal tradition myself, albeit the right wing form of liberalism, is that there is some truth to the 
argument, the old the old Marxist argument that liberalism can is, is very destructive of institutions. And I'm thinking of the very famous quotation, um, all that is solid melts into air. And uh, which is a beautiful line. It's a, just a be beautiful, euphonious phrase. Um, and that is a characteristic of liberalism and it has to watch itself because eventually you finish up trying to build your house on sand because you don't stand for anything and there are no institutions for you to participate in. And you finish up, all the institutions are captured, which is what you're describing with your experience with, with, with journalism, where, where people seem to turn into something else. You know, one of the things I like to do with, because I've obviously, there's millions of words by me out there. I have been doing this job for, for 26 years now. Uh, there's an enormous amount of writing by me in the world. If you wanted to hang, uh, hang me for a lion as a lamb, uh, then you easily could probably find something improper. But one of the things I've tried to do is I go back and read my early pieces in journalism going back to the 90s, and, and I try to be consistent, not necessarily in beliefs, for the simple reason there are many times in my life where I've been wrong. And you have to, when, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? That, the, the Samuelson quote it's not Keynes it's Samuelson and uh, the so but I've always tried to at least be the same person to have the same sort of character to respond to things in 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 pretty much the same way and and approach them in the same sort of thoughtful way but if you, that's a very conservative trait whereas a lot of liberals have a much weaker sense of what their values are and what they, how they actually think they should comport themselves in the world. So you can get an editor at a magazine, like you were describing, on two years ago or five years ago, having a joke about, oh my goodness, the, tran the, the trans activists are, are off the reservation, they're completely balmy. And then three, and you think, oh, right, this person might be sim simpatico to something I've written, in, speaking from your own perspective here. Um, and then you send them an article and they call you a transphobe and, and, and block you on Twitter. You know, and suddenly, uh, and I just think, no, if I have ever done that in my life, then that is a knock on me. That says that I don't have a stable sense of my own character. You know, I don't have a sense of how I ought to engage with other members of the public or with other people who disagree with me or present myself as as a writer whose work is going out into the world for anybody to read. Well, you talk about values, Helen, and this is the thing. I mean, the left, I've seen this over the past decade dealing with the gender wars. There's this push from the left, such as Slate, Bitch Magazine, Vice, that the more women are exposed, both literally, somatically, their breasts, their legs, the more they are out there to be sex workers, otherwise you're whorephobic. Did you know that? And the more that this is pushed on the one hand, and the more that anti-science nonsense is pushed, this seems to give the left this feeling that they're breaking down barriers. But here's the problem. They're not. I don't see any difference between these postures that have been taken, including the science editor at Slate, whose email I read to you, that they don't want to cover the science between a doctor having conducted an investigation about rapid onset gender dysphoria that in fact has been noted, documented, peer reviewed and published. Okay, so when you have a left that says 
basically, we're going to stick our fingers in our ears. And go la, 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 la. Exactly. Yes. This is what we're dealing with. I skipped to last year. Someone recommended a great documentary on Netflix, I guess, on the Flat Earth movement. If I were to suggest Flat Earth anything to any of these publishers who are running one piece after the other, including The Guardian, on my value as a transgender, this or that, or a non-binary, asexual, pansexual, over easy person, this would not be tolerated. We, we know that the earth is not flat. So where we can defend astronomy, we can defend geology, we cannot defend a simple equation of sexual dimorphism. And this has, as you've seen on Twitter, reeled out into wars. Professors have bodyguards. Professors have been no-platformed. Workers have lost their jobs to a greater detriment than many of these professors who will at least still have their contracts. I've, I've talked to people who work in libraries. I recently interviewed a New Zealand feminist, Rene Gerlich, who lost her job in a paint shop selling people pens and paintbrushes. Yes, well, it's like it's like the chap who was working for ASDA, who shared a Billy Connolly video and got sacked. Yeah, I yeah, mean, I remember for, that. God, for goodness sake, people, get a grip. So on the one hand, we have a left that's woke to all the terms and pronouns and Corbyn couldn't have been arsed about the people living within feet of my narrowboat in the centre of London. But yes, pronouns he, him as if we needed to know. So yeah. we see this, we saw this recapitulated in the US with the last two presidential elections, especially the last with Elizabeth Warren, putting her pronouns on there as if we needed to know. And are you a grandmother or a grandfather, right? I mean, the most absurd propositions come forth from the left, but they are least equipped to handle the bare bones of what do people need? Why is homelessness an issue in the US? Should we be considering a French, British, or a Canadian style healthcare system? All these obvious questions. Mm. And in the other strain of things, the left's eyes during the height of lockdown was turned to, I was misgendered when I went to ask about COVID. Where is the left? And then you had this extraordinary game of let's pretend where they wanted people to know that uh, coronavirus was having a disproportionate effect on people with darker skins in northern latitudes. But at the same time, they didn't want to say in public that the majority of the people with darker skins on which it was having a disproportionate impact were men. Uh, so it... it I, I think what is going on here, I can explain that. There's a little bit of intellectual history here. The most challenging thing, science, is not physics or chemistry. The most challenging of the sciences is the new kid on the block. It's biology and particularly evolutionary biology. And the reason it's challenging is it because it knocks Homo sapiens off his perch. It undermines the idea of special creation. And I think that is at the root of this rejection and the, and the blaming and the irritation with medical doctors and with biologists. And the latest one, of course, is Richard Dawkins. 
just stating just stating obvious facts of human biology. But the thing is, those obvious facts of human biology were not obvious for a very long period of history in monotheistic civilizations. Now, you can go back and read the Roman writer Lucretius, who was an Epicurean, and he sounds like Darwin, understands evolution, understands that human beings are mammals, understands that human beings are just another animal. The thing that makes them different is consciousness and an awareness that they will die. Uh, for all the stuff that you, you know, you've got, a, you've got an Arcananth background, all the very basic stuff you're taught in an anthropology degree, or you certainly used to be anyway, and I'm sure you were, uh, all of these very basic things. But then you lose that and you get the development of doctrines like special creation, which tries to put man mankind in a separate category and it leads to the most extraordinarily woolly thinking so you have all these endless tedious medieval debates about are women human you know this this is sort of basic problems of medieval theology whereas if you'd have gone to uh, a, a roman lawyer it wouldn't have been a philosopher because the romans didn't respect philosophy because they thought it was a wank um but uh, but if you'd have gone to a roman jurist and said, are women human? The immediate response would have been, well, of course they are. Slaves are human. The slavery wasn't considered natural in Roman law. It was an artificial creation made by human beings. It was an institution that suited legal arrangements, but it wasn't natural because nobody could get a, a, a class of slaves who were automatically obedient in the same way an Ulpian, the Roman jurist, says this, the same way you can't get a class of dogs or horses that are automatically obedient. They have to be trained. So you have this very long period of intellectual history where humans, male humans, were put in a very special super duper category, all of their own. And then along comes Charles Darwin and blows it all up. And I still think we are living in the aftermath of Charles Darwin coming along and blowing up 50, roughly 1500 years of intellectual history that had tried to put humans into a special category where they're somehow not subject to the laws of nature, the way your dog or your horse or your cat uh, or the, the, the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. And we've, one of the ways that you can spot this and it's an observation that was actually made by my old boss in Australia, who before he was elected to parliament and became a senator, he was a vet, large animal vet, veterinarian. So the bloke who looks after sheep and horses and cattle and, and goes out to country estates where, where people are trying to keep their animals healthy and so on and so forth. That for one, one period of his life before he was elected, he was actually Australia's leading specialist in sheep diseases and was contracted by Longman to write a textbook on sheep diseases and sheep dip. And this is for farmers, obviously, for people in agriculture, for farmers and graziers in agriculture. And he, in the end, he got elected and he had to write to Longman and return their advance to them and say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to do this. It's incompatible with being a senator. But he made an observation to me when I was working for him, where he said, did you notice how many of the Nobel laureates for medicine in the last 10 years their initial training was not in medicine. It was in veterinary science, including one of Australia's most recent Nobel laureates, a chap called Peter Doherty, who won the Nobel Prize for medicine. 
Peter Doherty is not a doctor of medicine. He's a doctor of veterinary science because all of these silly fairy stories about being able to change your sex or that there are six genders or 50 genders or God knows what, it, I mean, it seems to change every week. I can't keep track of it. Um, you cannot tell that to someone who comes to your veterinary practice with their sick cat. It's not going to fly. And the reason it flies with human beings is because by the back door, this the religious doctrine that exists in monotheism, it doesn't exist in the pagan traditions and it doesn't exist in Hinduism or Buddhism. But this idea from the monotheisms of special creation and the idea of a soul has re-emerged. And the thing is, of course, it's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. Well, we see that within the transgender lobby where we must have, you must have a soul that's female or woman, and you naturally want to wear Laura Ashley and wear, I don't know, English riding suits with a long crop or something, who knows? I have no idea. But the soul of the gendered individual has been put into action this past decade, ferociously, such that if you say, no, I don't have that soul, I'm a gender atheist, you are kicked out of social media as a transphobe. Of insolvent. And yep. one of the reasons why, for example, in philosophy, that the whole tradition, there used to be this extraordinary and quite rich tradition, it was all nonsense, but it was interesting nonsense around. Um, philosophy of mind, the reason it's basically vanished into the ether is because we now know that what we experience as a mind is just the body. It's biological. Right. It's neurological. So you have to hand all that speculation off to the neurologists. And then if the neurologists are beaten up and told, well, they can't do research in this area or so on and so forth, then what finishes up happening is the observation that my old boss made, you finish up handing it off to the veterinarians. And the reason you hand it off to the veterinarians is precisely the one that he said, if you go to the, the vet with your sick cat and the, he or she gives you some nonsense about how the cat identifies, think about this, just think about it. You would never go back to them again. You would find a different vet. So, of course, it doesn't happen. We've re-entered the scene of the Roman emperor who comes back after battle, where you have the slave, the auriga, who whispers into his ear the memento mori, saying, mm. you know, remember, remember that you are mortal. Exactly. Because we're in the era of the woke faction people thinking that they are something much more and that you and i are these poor cis women we're like eh, they're just cis like isn't it phenomenal how identity politics as you noted earlier has come to such a spin that it's not just about we we want to decry these historical ills which we would all agree slavery was not great horrible holocaust also, the Armenian Holocaust, as Madonna said after 9-11, there are Holocausts all the time in history, and she was booed for it, but she was quite correct. She's actually quite correct, yeah. I mean, this is what my first novel was about. The thing about the Holocaust isn't that it was the worst genocide in history, but that it reminded a lot of us of what we used to do all the bloody time to people who weren't like us. More recently on the basis of race, but historically for other reasons.
you know, and often if you look at the the, the, the um, early modern wars of religion, the Thirty Years' War, the 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 wars, the fighting over the most trivial theological differences, and I mean, I'm I'm aware of them because I'm a classicist, and have taken and taken an interest in theology, and and had to take an interest in theology in order to write my two Kingdom of the Wicked novels, the the idea of a Roman Empire having an industrial revolution. And so I had to get that sort of pagan thinking right so I had to understand where they were coming from and then also their Jewish and Christian opponents. And it's just extraordinary the way these fights would be over, you know, does the body and the blood of Christ exist in the bread and the wine or does it turn into the the body and blood of Christ when you put it in your mouth or when it goes into your stomach or so on and so forth. You know, wars were fought over this. Cities were fell and were looted and burnt. Mass slaughters and genocides. Well, we, we shouldn't really say genocide because genocide is based on genetics. Democide, as, a, as some of the political scientists call it, where you get the killing of vast numbers of people over some trivial difference. But it mattered to the people who were involved in it at the time. And all this silly hair splitting that you get now with the uh, with the, the, the modern woke lobby, and I'm just using it broadly here, is it's of a piece. The only difference is that when socialism went horribly wrong historically, it resulted in mass butchery, millions upon millions of deaths. You're not getting that. The worst you've had with the various aspects of wokeism is you could probably attribute a few of the deaths in the Black Lives Matter riots in the United States to it. Um, there were no deaths in Britain. There were no deaths. Or Australia didn't even have riots. They just had perfectly peaceful, orderly protests and so on and so forth. Likewise, in France, I think it might, they didn't even have they had a few protests and they can get quite edgy, the French can, with their, with their protests, you know, big punch-ups in the street and, you know, dropping piles of murder outside the Palais Bourbon and all this kind of thing. Um, so you could probably attribute a few deaths to, to wokery on steroids. But the, the reason why you get this concern, particularly amongst conservatives and, and, and also classical liberals, is the rhetoric and the claims of these people it sounds like very it sounds very similar to the rhetoric and the claims that happened at the beginning of socialism when it was going through that awful process of going wrong and so that's why you get the the conservatives doing a fairly traditional conservative thing in britain saying right no we're gonna have a free speech champion we're going to make you universities have free speech whether you like it or not suck it up which is a traditional Tory response to when they consider that uh, a minority or an ideology is um, is getting out of hand, is to come after it with the policeman with the baton. That's very much conservatism. That's the law and order thrown and all to Toryism, which is if you people don't know how to behave, we're going to make you behave. And you can argue for or against that, but that is where it is coming from because of this, this sense of, well, what's next, Lenin? That kind of thing. Given the last year, one thing that I mentioned earlier is that the rights of the 
the poorest, the ones most affected by lockdown are going to be people who have to pay rents every month and who haven't been given land by virtue of inheritance. And as I told you, I think I wrote you by email that I wanted to convert you into socialism in the interview. <laughs> but this is my thought on this matter, <laughs> where I take an issue with people owning multiple tracts of land, raking even, you know, let's look to Jeff Bezos, who's made more money than most countries around the world over the past 15 months from just one company of his. How is it that we can square up homelessness in London or anywhere else, mind you, because homelessness is a worldwide problem, very much in sync with our refusal to have discussions about population, family planning. This is something the left doesn't want to touch with a barge pole. So if you do raise it, you're automatically on the right. That said, how do we square up the fact that there are people who are now in debt to a landlord who owns various tracts of land they're going to have to somehow fork out $20,000 to pay for a small studio flat in Manhattan. And they're now unemployed and might be forever, especially if they're over the age of 35. Well, how do we square this up in a world? Let's just leave left and right or party politics aside. Can there be a resolution where <laughs> people share the land? My view of, of, of vast inequality inequalities of wealth was always been rising tide lifts all boats and if you as long as everybody's boat is 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 rising then it doesn't really matter if Jeff Bezos has lots of money and I still broadly think that's my view what I dislike is individuals using money to buy power and to buy influence and the irony is is that the influence purchase with, uh, with particularly these big American corporations, they've not really been able to do it very effectively to the Republican Party. The party they've done it to is the Democrats. And I sometimes wonder why that is the case. And I suspect it might be that sort of old, the, the, the grand old party tradition of, I see how much money you have and I know what you want to do with it, go away. Now, Br British Tories are less good at saying that, which is why you've now got all this enormous conflict over green seal capital, over uh, Dyson having Boris uh, Dyson having Boris Johnson's telephone number and texting him to get you know, to get a bit of a, oh, I'd like to make my life easier for my employees, which is a noble thing to do. That's fine. But ringing up the prime minister so that you can get a bit of a hand, that's probably not the right thing to do. Nobody else could do that. Well, not nobody else, but very few other people could do that, could use their power as a result of wealth to buy influence and to instantly get the ear of the cabinet. You know, this is not appropriate for a functioning liberal democracy. And one of the things, I mean, whilst you wouldn't, you're unlikely to convert me to socialism, one of the very good points you made in the, the first essay that you wrote for Savage Minds, which went absolutely viral. And that's how I found out about you because it was being tweeted everywhere. And I think I tweeted it too, about the way the open, um, that George Soros and the Open Society Foundation and various other outfits have used their wealth to buy influence and to capture institutions. You know, institutions don't belong to one or two people. They belong to the country. They belong to the people. This is one nation Toryism again. 
you cannot have one or 10 or 20 very wealthy people using their wealth to buy the government. And the thing is, the traditional way we fought that off was through legislation. And nobody, even though Donald Trump made all sorts of very promises about it, and so did the Conservatives in their 2019 manifesto, no one is facing that head on. And you also get the phenomenon, particularly with Soros, if you criticise the behaviour, which I think is very bad, it's very bad corporate behaviour. You know, I, I used to be a corporate lawyer. I know the difference between good and bad corporate citizens. If you criticise Soros and the Open Society Foundation for behaving in this way, you're accused of racism. Now, that's an example of an individual using his ethnicity as a shield against legitimate criticism. So you've got this awful entanglement and corruption of the right to make a good living and to become very wealthy if you have a good idea and provide a good service or a good product. And then assuming because you've successfully done that, that buys you the right to go and tell everybody else what to do. So that to me is where an element of con traditional conservatism, but also socialism has something important to say to people now. The piece that you're referring to, I, I found out that The Guardian was getting paid quite a bit of money to run pieces to promote the transgender fiction. <laughs> and I say this unreservedly because Oh, no, it's easy to find. You can find it on the internet. It's not just your journalism and you're a good investigative journalist. I mean, people like Laura Dodsworth have written about this and and uh, yeah, and people like Steve Davies in the Tory graph is a conservative, you know, this, this kind of thing. It's quite widely known. And again, you know, I'm one to criticize if the right were to do this. And I referred earlier to the Heritage Foundation. Mm. In the early years when I was working on my first master's, I wrote about what they were doing in Nicaragua. They were doing very bad things in Nicaragua with the Contras. So yes. I find my job as a writer to step away from bipartisan completely. And it's actually quite easy once you realize the mess you're in. Because the first shock for me was pitching to editors and finding out I don't know if you found this out when you entered this world. You find out what publications you can pitch what to. Now that's sick because I should be able to pitch a piece on homelessness in let's say East St. Louis to anyone and have that considered on its own merit. I know, however, that if I wanna pitch a piece to Slate, it better be about how Black Lives Matter is a great organization I better not point out that the women who formed that organization are not poor, they are black, and they're part of a larger gender identity movement, and they form part of a, a black elite in the United States. Can't say that. And so there's all these things that you can't say. What you have to do is shovel the shit of basically lies and talk about how they represent the most oppressed people. Skip to... The fact that now Black Lives Matter over the past 13 days, 10 days has been criticized by various actors on the ground in the US and people are starting to say, finally, where's the money, right? Because I start to look at the money because Black Lives Matter, some of their board members made money from the defense industry. 
they were part of a think tank in Colorado, which has very strict links mm -hmm. to the Department of Defense and the Pentagon. So we're talking about people who make, they speak out of both sides of their mouth. They are very happy to take money from organizations that like BA Industries, which makes weapons of mass destruction, bombing Syria, yep. bombing Somalia, bombing now Yemen. And, and Yemen, Yemen. The, the one that really stood out to me was Yemen. And uh, they used to, uh, when I was still more heavily involved with the gay rights movement, they used to call it pink washing. But now you've got woke washing. <laughs> and they, they make themselves look woke so that nobody notices them selling all the all these arms to dodgy regimes in the Middle East and just sort of going, guys, sorry. <laughs> the left and the right have almost shifted, like I look at an X formation, and I think of the left shifting slowly to the right and the right shifting slowly to the left. And I know you've explained that this isn't socialism, but there is something very clearly leftish about what I'm seeing in the right-wing media over lockdown concerning workers. I want to praise you for saying that because I grew up, obviously I've been on the political right, with people, and fortunately they were always a minority and they've largely been chased out of the Tory party now, who would, tr who would try to claim, oh no, Hitler wasn't right-wing, he was a socialist because they were the national socialists. And I just sit there and go, no. This is what happens when your political tradition metastasizes. And you have to accept, and Ed West has written very well about this. He's the deputy editor of Unheard in the UK. He says, you know, you, if you've got a brain and you're a Tory, you can see little bits of your tradition of Toryism in Nazism. And part of being a grown-up on the right is accepting that. I'm now noticing quite a lot of people on the left not doing what you just did and noting it, when you see this nutty wokery or, or historically the, the murderous behaviour of the various communist regimes and the genocides and democides there, um, trying to say, oh, no, this isn't leftism. And it's not the old claim of, oh, no, Marxism or communism's never really been tried. That's kind of put to one side now. It's this attempt that used to exist amongst conservatives of denying that you could look at these traditions and the historical events that, that in which they engaged and see bits of your own ideological system in them. And I mean, Arnold Kling called it the three languages of politics. And it's undoubtedly clear that all these weird identity politics groups have got the oppressor oppressed idea from Marxism. You know, so you can see chips of that distinctive left-wing tradition feeding into this nonsense the same way that if you're an honest conservative, you can see chips of your own distinctive tradition, you know, the, the, you know, the, the idea of the nation and the integrity of the nation, the importance of the nation, the fact that internationalism probably doesn't work and involves a lot of pretending and so on and so forth. You can see chips of that turning up in Nazism and Italian fascism. And you just have to accept that that's true because there's too much evidence for it otherwise. Well, I think what the left has done, and this is a post-war manifestation, and I was, it's hard to put it all down now, but what happened in the post-war era was that suddenly women were shifted from the home, uh, shifted from the factory to the home. It's what 
critical theorist Christina Zerlango calls the atomic home, where instead of fixing airplane wings or prop propellers and installing those onto airplanes as women were doing at the time, they then were given blenders and dryers and washing machines to tend to. So it became this sort of let's mechanize the kitchen and the household as you are put back into your cage. This happened. Then second wave femin feminism grew from this in very different ways. You had the uh, Révolution Tranquille in Quebec. This was very huge in North America as it proposed many things at once. You had a pushback to the Catholic Church that was telling people how to vote on instruction of the oligarchs in Quebec. You had feminists who were coming from 10 mm. children families pushing back and saying, I'm not a reproduction machine. Then you had other movements happening in the United States, uh, obviously on the heels of Le Deuxième Sex, and all of this with women becoming Valium addicts and alcoholics, you saw a huge rise in drug addiction, alcoholism amongst the quote unquote housewife of the 1950s and 60s. And then we saw a way to combat injustice. I, I recently referred to Rebel Without a Cause as this kind of hallmark moment where Nicholas Ray gives us cultural revolution in one narrative, but it sort of encapsulates the generational war, the on the street war, the racial war, if you wish, uh, West Side Story, throw that in too. And you've got through, you know, West Side Story was great because you have musical showing us this dissonance in American culture. Hence, earlier when I said, what is white? At the time of West Side Story, being Italian was enough to be black. Let's not forget the KKK weren't just lynching black Americans. They were also killing Catholics, communists, gays, Jews. I mean, the list was on and on. And there's a larger history there, too. Yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, the one bit of American history about which I have good knowledge, which is typical of um, people who are start out politically as classical liberals, is prohibition. And here you had the Ku Klux Klan supporting votes for white women. Oh, yes. And leading this extraordinary campaign of xenophobia against immigrant groups that voted wet, including immigrant groups that even in the late 19th century in the United States were coded white, like the German Americans, because the German Americans ran all the breweries. That's right. And uh, it's just some of the first examples of the use of redistricting in the United States in order to weaken the power of the black vote in, in non-Jim Crow states and the uh, ethnic vote, Germans and Italians particularly, uh, were led by white women, white feminists who had were newly enfranchised. Remember the 18th and the 19th amendments go together and you had that awful boast from Elizabeth Cady Stanton that, um, I think it was Elizabeth Cady Stanton, that all the while the 19th amendment stands, the 18th shall also. And some of the first attempts at redistricting to weaken the, the votes of immigrant men, working class men who voted wet, came from upper middle class white feminists who wanted to, it's the same thing again of, oh, I've suddenly got power. 
I'd like to keep it, thanks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell everyone a sad story about how oppressed I am in order to keep it while I'm grinding down the Germans and the Italians. You know, and this is this is not hard history to find. I mean, organisations like the Cato Institute, because of that American style libertarianism, are often very good on this. But then you've got the problem of people who are buying into this oppressor oppressed narrative, not being willing to read something that's published by the Cato Institute because it's the Cato Institute. This kind of thing. I think the common denominator of of what's wrong today left or right but right now the left I think is in the guilty seat lies in this inability to behold and explain even or struggle with complex thought I'll give you an example I post something on my wall and then immediately I'm not going to tell you what it is I just post something on my wall and someone comes back and says well, didn't you know that that person or that country did this? So they immediately derail instead of focusing on whatever it was I just posted. We're not able to just take a grain's worth a poem by Robert Frost and say, isn't this a great poem? Instead, it's he was a wife beater. Now, I'd say this because that was me 20 years ago. I was that person saying he was a wife beater. I kid you not. I was woke. Or pre-woke, before woke thing happened. Yeah, I know what you mean, though. Yes, I know. I do know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's okay that we read a poem by Robert Frost. Uh, personally, I don't think he's a great poet. Not my cup of tea, but whatever. We could read, let's say, Anne Sexton, who I do love. Anne Sexton. And then do we have to dwell on the fact that she committed suicide every time we read a poem? Menstruation at 40. Great poem. Do we have to talk about her depression? Same with Sylvia Plath. Uh, well, yes, the, I was, the, the first thing that came to mind was Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath, and that's an obvious and ob really clear example of this. Yeah. We can't just read a book anymore. We have to somehow then say, well, that Palestinian writer is if now we have to like the book even more, or <laughs> that white writer, you have to like the book less. And I think we've become so jaded, going back to your theory about Darwin, yes, I mean, we've got a huge problem where we're even reinvoking the very terminology that Darwin himself scoffed at. He was laughing at the fact that people tried to find races amongst humans. There was a certain security that Darwin's origin of species broke and it shook the world, as you mentioned, tremendously because people like to have their racial groups. We see it today. And here's my theory now. It's not just about complex thought that the left cannot sit with and say, I can be against, let's say, the settlements in the West Bank and Gaza at the same time as I can be against slate, no platforming writers because they want to write about rapid onset gender dysphoria without insulting writers. It's the whole inability to hold more than one thought in your head at any one time. You know, it's like I, I have had this argument because, uh, and I mean, there are people probably going to cancel me now as soon as I say this. I mean, my partner and I have booked a sunny holiday in September. And what's the one sunny place you can go to that's uh, perfectly safe to travel to? We'll both be fully vaccinated and so will everyone there. We've booked our sunny holiday in September in Israel. <laughs> It's just, and, and the thing is, you can 
do that and be supportive of the Israeli economy and impressed by their vaccine rollout and all of that kind of thing, at the same time as thinking that, well, maybe their human rights record isn't pretty, isn't particularly flash. You can do that. It's possible to do these things, to hold these two thoughts in your head at the same time. <laughs> it's just... I understand that people are frustrated with certain historical representations. Look at what's happened this past week. I believe Biden conceded that Armenia suffered a genocide. Okay. Which I think is a great thing, by the way. And I loved it, his statement. I mean, I'm I'm not sure what I'd vote in America if I lived there. It would probably have to be the libertarians because I find both the Republicans and the Democrats completely bonkers. But, um, (laughs) and at least, and and the libertarians are are bonkers as well, but they're honestly bonkers. So you get a bloke running for the libertarian candidacy, uh, promising everyone a pony and wearing a boot on his head. (laughs) Vermin Supreme. Well, see, when I read about... (laughs) When I read about his having ushered that statement that Armenia has been waiting for decades for, I thought immediately this. I don't really care what Biden has said now because that genocide is long ago. But what is the cultural weight of the term genocide? Just as, and I compare this to BLM, why is it important that people say, as we saw on Twitter, so you're saying that black lives don't matter, Helen? What? Black lives don't matter. So what is with this genuflection to the word genocide? And the word genocide, we have to remember, came out of the Nuremberg trials. And also remember that poor Raphael Lemkin, who came up with it when he originally drafted it. This is a legal point, but it's worth knowing because it's the kind of information that lawyers tend to know and other people don't. Um, He meant it to cover all of the mass slaughters. So not just what the Nazis did, but also what the communists did. And the definition would not have been accepted um, had the Western powers, in this case, not conceded ground to the Soviet Union, because by this point, the Ukrainian famine, the Holodomor, had become widely known in in Western countries. And the fact that people like Walter Duranty at the New York Times have been lying about it. Um, And poor Raphael Lemkin had wanted the definition of genocide to be capacious enough to include the Ukrainian famine and the Soviets ensured using their spot on the Security Council that it was the definition was redrafted so that it included the Holocaust and excluded the Holodomor. So uh, yeah, this is the sort of the really awful, messy intellectual history of defining terms. And it's why you get some political scientists using democide instead, instead, you know, the sort of the deliberate killing of more than 10% of a particular group's population that kind of thing well this is where we get to then the crossroads of where names and words and this push that we've been watching over twitter the you've misgendered me helen and i didn't ask your pronouns by the way but i'm just (laughs) gonna go with zer and so we get to this very what many call purity politics purity positions of how I behold you, not what I see. Who cares what I see? Your eyes aren't as important as my ears, right? So this is where I've had a discussion with a good friend of mine years ago, Genevieve, and we talked about this because both of us were Americans living in London. Both of us were not white Americans living in London and talking about this need to identify with one's oppression. And she said, people grab hold of their oppression, they can't let go, they can't move on. And it's something that if you look at theater, and I mean the theory of theater, that 
there's something to be said for actors working through characters, moving on to new roles. The same thing that I think the left needs to learn to do is that we can identify as a press for that moment, that full stop in time, which anthropologists refer to. We can make a full stop. We can examine what's happened. And then we need to move on from that once that situation is resolved. This is my problem with a lot of the things that have happened over the last few years, especially last summer's BLM protests, is this. It's not 1955, folks. And I say both to BLM activists who want to pretend we're living in some kind of weird, even worse production of Mississippi Burning, and to feminists yeah. who think that somehow we saw this in the aftermath of the horrible murder of Sarah Everard. And no, I mean, the reality is, and I've talked to women on the right, women are not getting murdered walking across Hyde Park at this moment, nor last night. And I think we need to square that the reality, and my father taught me this because he moved to the Deep South from India. He watched Martin Luther King. He was part of the civil rights era. And he said, we need to work with the moment of revolution, but we also need to work through it. I presume you're also British, not only Australian. I can blame you for my oppression. Yes, I, I'm a dual national. I, I have uh, three nationalities, uh, two of which are uh, formalised in the sense that I hold both a British and an Australian passport. But I'm also, because my mother was born there, I'm also eligible for, for Irish citizenship and an Irish passport. And let's just tell you, the Irish have a long, long history of... Um, telling sad stories about how badly they've been done down. And it's like all of these narratives of, of victimisation and oppression, or not all of them, I think some of them probably are made up, but in the case of the Irish, in the case of, of, of Imperial India, in the case of the US South with African-Americans, prohibition for the Germans and the Italians and so on and so forth, and for many of the, the early histories of feminism, particularly in Catholic countries, there's a kernel of truth in every single one of them. And I don't like when I see some conservatives responding to fatuous nonsense from, say, Black Lives Matter now by just basically saying, oh, toddle off, I can't be bothered with you at all. Uh, forgetting, for example, that Britain never had redlining. So you don't have this sort of problem of, of, of black people having centuries effectively of no money. But you have to take it seriously uh, when you go to the United States, because informally it still exists. You've got this whole phenomenon of, uh, yes, there's middle class blacks in the US now. That's great. That's terrific. That's a tick for the Americans. But they all seem to live in the same area. You know, they haven't developed the concept of mixed neighbourhoods like we have here. The British have done it brilliantly. I was impressed to be walking from what is around the Hyde Park area. I was at a museum near there. And within seconds, I was in the middle of an estate. For Americans listening to this show, an estate does not mean what you think it means. Mm. It's public housing. Public housing. Council estate. Council estate, it's called in England or a scheme in Scotland. That's right. So you would see, and you see this all over London, you will go from rich and poor architectural structures. And some of the estates, beautiful. Yes. The British know how to do public housing far better. I've written about this for the Morning Star. The British are great at doing public housing. Americans need to learn from them every bit. Can I ask you about your book? 
The one that caused all the controversy in Australia is called The Hand That Signed the Paper. You can buy them all off of Amazon, or uh, but if you don't want to put money into Bezos's pocket, may I recommend the bookshop Blackwell's in Oxford. They sell them all, uh, they, uh, but you can get them all relatively easily. This book was uh, the centre of a scandal. Yes, it was. After you published your book in 1994, you won the Miles Franklin Award, became the award's youngest winner. I should perhaps explain that the Miles Franklin Award is the Australian equivalent of, of the Booker or the Pulitzer. Okay, and then the following year, yeah. that's when the scandal kicked off because... The claim yes, was you had falsely claimed Ukrainian ancestry as part of the basis for the book under a pseudonym. Well, yeah, I, I wrote it under a pseudonym and I did not intend for, I'll be quite frank about this, I did not intend for the pseudonym to be discovered. But then, of course, I didn't intend to win the Miles Franklin either. So there's a big difference. <laughs> there's a big difference between writing a book and getting it published and it becoming reasonably popular um, and then winning the Miles Franklin and having it turn into an enormous bestseller. And, of course, it would be like if, to use an analogy, if John le Carre, that's a, a pen name, it's not his real name, um, his first book had won every prize worth having and then suddenly everybody wanted to know who he was and then everyone discovering that he was David Cornwall. Now, that fortunately didn't happen to him and we have this whole body of work and he was able to, in his own time and at his own pace, out himself and explain why he used a pseudonym. I wasn't, I was denied that opportunity. It, it was discovered uh, very quickly once I'd won the big prize and a big part of it and the, if you get a recent edition of the book, I mean, there are many different editions on uh, the different websites, but it, apart from the fact that the, the newer edition um, is the one that will continue to earn me money as an author, the newer edition has a, a special introduction. My publisher got me to rewrite a special introduction because it was a 20th anniversary edition for it, where I talked about, and you can read the essay, it's on Quillette, it's also on the website of The Australian, but and the spectator but the spectator and the australian a paywalled quillette isn't so you can just find it on quillette and the headline on quillette is cultural appropriation isn't real because this is was a big part of the accusation and i responded with not the liberal response and this is one area where i am wholly tory and there is no classical liberalism and no leftism in my values i responded with the con conventional tory definition of novelists write about what they like if you don't like about what the novelist writes about or how they comport themselves, then don't buy their book. It's very simple. I always presented it as fiction. However, I did get the opportunity to talk to people who were actually involved in the historical events. And I did the usual thing of, of someone who um, talks to people who are involved in the historical events uh, of uh, changing all the names and changing all the places so they couldn't be identified. Uh, but, and I, fictionalized it I turned it into a story because by skill then um, I'd done very very little journalism my, my skill then as someone who was a 19 and uh, this is it's going to sound terribly conceited but it's nonetheless true so I might as well say it uh, was I was this person who could really really write um, I had every possible academic advantage at school uh, I'm not denying that for a moment but it from the age of about 15 or so I could write like someone who'd been writing for 20 or 30 years. I had no issue finding my voice. 
uh, it was just there. It was so obvious that the chair of the judges of the Miles Franklin Award, uh, which is run by the Miles Franklin Trust, an organisation that was founded by Stella Maria Miles Franklin, who wrote My Brilliant, Brilliant Career, which is probably just about the most famous Australian novel, realistically. There might be a couple of Patrick Whites that chase her, but her, her My Brilliant Career is probably the, the most famous and best-selling Australian novel that's known globally. It was made into a popular film and all of that kind of thing. Um, she funded, founded and set up the Miles Franklin Trust under her will for this big prize. And it is a very valuable prize. You get a lot of money and of course you get all book sales out of it because a lot of people, if they only buy in Australia, if they only buy one book a year, they will buy the Miles Franklin Award winner. There's a tradition of that. And uh, so the chair of the judges, Dame Leonie Kramer, because I won this enormous award when I was 20, 22 for a book that I wrote when I was 20, 19 and 20, she said, your style is extremely mature and very polished. You know, she, she wrote to me and she said, can you send me some samples of your writing from high school? So, and this is going back to the 90s, it's before the internet. So I basically got copies of the school magazine. I was the editor of the school magazine in the upper six and uh, I'd written for it in other years. And so I just went and basically photocopied a, a selection of things that I'd written for the school magazine. I'd won a short story prize that was run by the state's newspaper, which is in Queensland is called the Korea Mail. It still exists. And uh, I, I photocopied that and, and sent it to her. And I heard nothing more for three months or so. And I thought, oh, well, okay, I managed to bore the chair of the, the Miles Franklin Award. Oh, well, at least they got, gave me the prize and I made some money out of it. And then I got a letter back from her, from her very fancy embossed, because she's a dame of the was a dame of the realm. It's very fancy embossed, personalized letterhead. Um, and she said, "Your writing style hasn't changed since you were fifteen. It's exactly the same writing style. You could have written this book if you'd have known the story and met the right people when you were fifteen. The style was just set." And uh, so. My skill was to take a narrative of whatever sort, whether it was historical or, or not, and turn it into fiction. And I did it again with my, my two Kingdom of the Wicked books, which are based on the idea of an industrial revolution happening in ancient Rome. And I've taken the story of the Gospels and rewritten them as if the events happened in the contemporary Middle East. But instead of being a conflict between Islam and the West, it's a conflict between paganism and monotheism and different conceptions of what is moral and human. And that's my thing. That's what I do as a novelist. And uh, I then got taken into, as a result of the success of the first book, I finished up writing for um, newspapers and magazines and writing political type commentary. And, and, uh, and I went into practice as a lawyer. So I finished up writing as a legal commentary as well. And it was very much off and on because lawyers work long hours. So there were periods where I just couldn't do any writing at all outside of my work because I was working 16 hour days and it was just impossible otherwise. But the thing with the first book was I was accused of cultural appropriation. And this was in 1995. So it shows you that the point made by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay in Cynical Theories that 
these ideas have been around for quite a long time and a lot of people are encountering them for the first time now. But when I consider that the controversy over my first book, and it's very easy to find information about this, not just from the essay that I wrote, but on the internet and so on and so forth, was over exactly the sort of thing that you're getting controversies over now. It's just the thing I was able to do in 1995 that is much harder for new writers now is I was able to mount a traditional conservative defence of the writer, what writers do, the role of the writer, uh, how writers use information and then turn it into a story, and also the right of a writer to, to write what they like and the right of a reader to read what they want. That, the ability that I had to do that in 1995 and 1996 it's become much, much harder. And I honestly think, I, I don't know whether you followed any of this, but a, a friend of mine who writes young adult books, um, she said that there's this new phenomenon that's sort of emerged over the last five years of books being pre-cancelled. So they're actually withdrawn or the publication, the contract is withdrawn before the book is published. So, and if it's a new author, of course, it means they have no career. That's the end very often. Yep. This happened to Julie Birchill recently. Yes. And the thing is, I know Julie Birchill quite well, because we're both represented by the same agent. And, uh, you know, and here's, here's my agent who's, he's, and I'm happy to sing his praises. He's very good. His name is Matthew Hamilton. And he's very good at his job. And uh, so, so you get pre-cancellation. Now that did not happen with the hand that signed the paper. There was no hint that it would ever happen. I had a perfectly normal professional publication experience. Um, you know, even though the publisher said I was warned by my editor, you know, in the, in the most obvious way, all oh, this book might be a bit controversial, but that means there's extra sales. That sort of very sanguine response to a book that is potentially controversial appears to be gone now. And I wonder now at another 20-year-old out there who's got as much talent as I had when I was 20, if their work is ever going to even see the light of day. That's my concern now. It's all right for me. I'm established. I'm fine. What about a new person, a young person? 